Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live in Ottawa, Ontario. Today was the Digital History Open House here at the University of Ottawa, a couple floors up from where we are sitting. Very pleased to be joined by the keynote speaker from that event, John Bonnet from Brock University. Welcome to the show. Hello, glad to be here. So you were here talking about ways in which we can reimagine the past, where the discipline is today, and and normally around this time of year, uh, we would be at Congress. I'm not going this year, so and normally Congress is where I do an episode about the state of the field. Uh, and since I won't do it this year, I figured this is a good opportunity because that talk was really, I thought, uh, illuminating on the state of the field. And I, I like the way you structured it in that you started with a way to reimagine the past. And you talked about the animal turn a little bit. And you, like mm-hmm. you said, you're not really an expert on this. Uh, but this is something the animal turn I've read about a little bit, and I'm by no means an expert on it either. And I've always thought it kind of weird, and uh, that it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. But the way you explained it actually helped a little bit. Right. Uh, so, so for people who are listening who might not be familiar with the animal turn, how would you frame it in in just yeah like quickly so that someone who's not a historian, even you, because because to to explain the animal turn in history to a non-historian, I imagine would be a very difficult task. Yeah, I would say starting out that yeah, I agree with you. I'm or you know just to repeat, I'm not an expert in the animal turn. Uh, you know, you'd want somebody like Dan Vandersummers or somebody uh, who is an expert and a leading right. proponent in this field for that. Um, Part of the reason I'm interested in the animal turn, just to start also, is is that, you know, in history and the humanities, there are multiple proclamations of a turn here or a revolution there. And they come and go and nobody pays much attention. But this was the first one that for me personally spoke to me in a way that none of the other turns have. Um, it was uh, you know, when I, I, I didn't even know a great deal about the animal turn until about uh, three months ago. Right. <laughs> and then I read Vandersummer's uh, piece on the uh, American Historical Review blog. And it was just the reaction was, oh my God, this is something in line with what I've been thinking about for a number of years. And so that was the part of the appeal for it. And the other part of the appeal was is that Brock, we had a, uh, at our Humanities Research Institute, uh, you know, we have a conference every semester where we celebrate the end of the end of term, and mm-hmm. some colleagues will get up and give a talk. And this one happened to be devoted to the animal turn, and it was just one of those things where it was like, oh my God, I need to participate in this. This is really <laughs> interesting. Uh, what can I do, and you know, what can I contribute? And I ended up giving a paper there, and then a version of it here. But as far as what the animal turn is, you know, the way I characterized it in my paper and. I'd say most proponents of the animal turn would state that you know, our intention is to bring animals into history, that there needs to be a growing recognition that germs matter. Right. Or, yep. a, you know, animals were a part and parcel and participant in history. Or that uh, ecological systems or planetary systems have had a bearing. Mm-hmm. It's not something historians haven't known before. I mean, you read your anal historians and, you know, references to the long durée. Well, you know, we know that this is something mm-hmm. important. But there's an emphasis on it now, it seems to me, that there wasn't before. The other one is something uh, I'm not sure most animal-turn-historians would necessarily agree with, but it's the way I glommed onto it. And it's, to me, the animal-turn represents a way of thinking about history and historical context that takes us to areas that are not very familiar or comfortable for us. So I'd say the default wisdom of the, the discipline since, say, World War One has been, we're materialist. Mm-hmm. We yeah. look for causes that we know. Uh, we look for proximate connections. This is how you construct serious history. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that the animal turn is pointing us to some areas that are a little uh, alarming, a little (laughs) uncomfortable, but potentially uh, quite transformative or different in terms of where we may be going as a profession in terms of the kind of context that we describe when we try to reconstruct the past. And so here I'm thinking about two things. One is panpsychism, 
which is a philosophy that argues that uh, sentience or agency is actually far more widespread than we traditionally have acknowledged. And yes. you know, things that are, you know, we've, we use terms like dumb as a stump. Right. Well, um, if you are aware of, say, some interesting research on trees, uh, such as described by Peter Volobin in his book, you know, The Hidden Life of Trees, stumps are actually pretty smart. Right, yeah. And so are their neighbors that are alive that are helping to keep that stump alive. Mm -hmm. You know, if you talk about bird brains, again, we tend to associate a lack of deep uh, agency or life yep. to some, at least some categories of animals. Well, it turns out birds are creating symphonies that are equivalent in complexity to 19th century Western symphonies and <laughs> using tools and doing all these kinds of things. And again, birds are actually pretty, uh, pretty smart. So that, you know, that's leading me to, you know, with that degree of sentience in domains, whether it's single-celled organisms or trees or birds or whatever, that is making it more plausible for me to think about a context in which we live and move uh -huh. where there is consciousness and agency and there are some in philosophy that argue that that sense of agency extends all the way down to electrons and extends as far afield as the planet potentially the cosmos itself so you know the question i've got is well what do i do with that right that and that's the thing right sitting there listening to you talk is sort of thinking about it like I, okay i can i can buy into the idea i think of these things being sentient because they're living and breathing. So, of mm. course, like they, they ha there has to be some level of, of something that allows them to do that, right? Like you, a plant is in the ground. It doesn't sort of, it's not static. It's always changing and growing. Yeah. So, of course, it's alive, and we've acknowledged that it's alive. The thing that I always talk to, like, my vegetarian friends about is when, when they say, oh, how can you eat an animal? It's this living, breathing thing. And I say, well, so is a, a tomato. Yes. It's a living, breathing thing. It just doesn't have a face. Right, that's really yeah. the, the key difference to me. I mean, the well, it's more than that. I mean, that plant, or you know, I mean, plants learn from experience. Right, plants communicate. Plants seem to have a sense of species identity. <laughs> they seem to have a sense of different, you know, of a group identity. They communicate mm -hmm. with other uh, other plants. They seem to uh, harness uh, something akin to an internet. What right. the journal uh, Science calls the Wood Wide Web, <laughs> where they they connect with. Oh, I can't remember what mushrooms are should uh, should be called, but you know, mushroom like uh, plants that uh -huh. connect fungus. The fungal yes, networks, yes, underground yeah. fungal networks, and these things are huge. And uh, trees will com uh, communicate by these fungal networks. So, you know, when you're dealing with a world like that, all of a sudden it looks very, very different. And yes. how do you, you know, how do you then, as a historian who's generally limited, you know, one scope to just human activity generally and you know and I think our general disposition as a discipline is is we don't connect what we do uh, in human history with natural history we keep the two domains apart right but that division's becoming less and less viable to maintain the more we learn about how germs build multiple you know these large scale settlements that with characterized <laughs> by division of labor so right. really, are they all that different? You know, and what mm -hmm. what is it that we use to justify or distinctiveness to the point where our history is then to be kept separate from the right. history Cause, of cause everything we, else? Yeah, there's the universality of it. That we're all living together yeah. uh, in some form. And and when you talked about the idea of, of plants creating defenses, right? You you use the image of a giraffe. Um, eating from a, a tree, like one of yeah. those, like, I call them umbrella trees because I don't actually know what they're called. Oh, oh um, I forget. Acacia trees, I forget. Right, what yeah, but so, so those trees, like we, we would look at it normally and just say, oh, well, the tree has evolved in that setting yeah. to, to do this. And we don't attach any agency to it. We don't say that the, the tree as the species has learned to do this. We just say, oh, it just evolved that way. And we almost take it for granted. But we don't take into account the process through which that happened. Yet, when human beings say, if we take, say, northern communities, the way they learned how to survive in the north, we attach the agency to it and say they learned how to do this and they adapted to the environment. But we don't do that with other objects 
because we don't give them agency. And I, I can't really wrap my head around why other than they don't have the, those objects don't have the ability to communicate with us, right? They don't, there's no language in which they can actually say to us, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And so much of history is looking at the words that were left by people, right? Yes. Like at least traditional histories and trees don't have words, right? Animals don't leave us words. And so, well, that's the interesting thing. Maybe they do, and it's just we don't know. We don't know the language. We don't know the language. But yeah. I mean, the, the um, uh, trees do, in fact, communicate. Right. And in fact, you know, to use the you know the example of the uh, the acacia tree that you're dealing with, when that tree is being consumed by a giraffe, it understands that it's being consumed by a giraffe. And it responds to that by filling the leaves with compounds that make that leaf taste bitter to the giraffe. Right. Further, it releases, I think it's a methylene gas or something, that <laughs> then lets its neighbors know that, it, hey, there are giraffes around. You better you know, uh, right. take yeah. countermeasures to make your leaves taste awful to uh, the giraffes. Mm -hmm. And the giraffes know that this is happening, so when this process of solid uh, <laughs> solid sabotage goes on yeah they know enough to leave and proceed like a hundred meters down to some place that has not received the uh, the alert from mm -hmm. uh, the acacia tree so that they can again uh, resume their meals so there there is a communication process going on and to what extent that we're able then to communicate with them well you know God knows who knows what the, how that's going to be. One interesting thing about it, though, is, is that potentially that knowledge will have a bearing on things like vectors that we create for uh, dealing with bacteria, because our standard mm -hmm. method for dealing with bacteria now um, is uh, to create drugs that destroy the bacteria. Yep. But uh, Princeton biologist uh, Bonnie Bassler has noted that there's another template that we could use, which is basically uh, jamming the uh, communication between the various microbes. Right. The various microbes when they decide to attack an organism in which uh, the host organism they vote mm -hmm. and the way they vote is through communication well if we keep if we create a process where we can hinder them from communicating right they don't attack and right. so that's another way to stop the uh, spread of disease right which is really interesting in terms of like something like cancer right where if, if there's possible then to take the cancer cells and have them not be able to communicate with the other cells or not attack the other cells rather than actually attack them themselves. Yeah. Right? Like I'm always stunned when, and I haven't been in a lot of situations where people are going through chemo, but like the, the amount of protections that the people administering the chemo need to take so that they're safe. And yes. yet we're pumping this into another human being's body yes. and essentially to kill pretty much everything in there. It, it, if there's a way to just prevent the communication between the different cells, it's such a safer way to yeah. uh, address the issue and and it strikes me as then as a historian though what is interesting about it is in doing this and recognizing the the sentient activity it cr almost minimizes or it, it takes away from the role of human beings a little bit right and, and like you said as historians we've been so focused on people and now this forces us to reimagine what the world is that it's yes. not it's not this planet that we control it's this planet with which we engage on a daily basis and that's a to me a very radical shift yes it is and i frankly have no idea where that's going to take <laughs> us that shift and uh you know in my talk this morning i i said well historians are generally reluctant to make forecasts and so i forecast to the extent that i could right. but where this is going to take us I have no idea, but all I can say is, is that at least personally, it's a, a route I find appealing. It's a way of thinking about history that I think is very new and very uh, different than anything that I've learned up to date. And it just strikes me as also potentially one of the most intellectually fruitful. There's something to build on here. Yeah. And I think a lot of historians, particularly younger ones, are looking for something like that. And right. this gives us a basis then to... Well, you know, you know, our job as a discipline is always to look at the past and try to find something new, or to right. you know, to see if there's a, another uh, context, another narrative that helps us to gain better purchase on the past or a more useful purchase on the past. And this strikes me as a pretty good way to go. A really good one. And just even today in the news, I don't know if you've paid attention. I know you're on the road, so uh, it's it, my news consumption gets always screwed up when I'm not at home. 
But there was a case here in Ottawa where they had to evacuate a home. A couple of people got sick because they had coral. They had purchased this coral that was emitting some sort of poisonous Ew. gas. So, yeah. so, but you, you generally you would see that and say, oh well, the people made the mistake by not knowing it was right. poisonous. But you could also look at it as saying the coral is defending itself yes. by putting this out. Yes. Right? And that's a, an interesting way to look at it. But then y- you also tried to tie in then the digital side of it. Because, yeah. you know, the digital, it's very interesting to me that you go from talking about the sentient activity of things to this digital world in which people are concerned <laughs> that digital tools maybe will become sentient and sort of control us if they're not already right. controlling us to a certain degree. But how does this all tie in? Like, how do we tie in the digital with a reimagining of the past and, and, and understanding a sentient activity on, on the part of things that traditionally we haven't done? Right. One way you can think about history is a concern with how one thing connects with another. Mm-hmm. How one, one individual connects with another, how one social system connects with another, one social category connects with another, and so on. And how all those, you know, that, that then results in an incredibly complex set of communications and interactions and whatever, and out of that complex comes the historical events that we attempt to understand and describe. Right. So, the animal turn, to my mind, suggests a context that's going to make that job ever more complicated. But potentially it will also provide a source of ideas to help us gain better purchase on how human collectives operate, how they Mm -hmm. evolve, how they unfold, whatever. So one example of that might be something that the social sciences already do, which is uh, they study the interaction of germs, the field Mm -hmm. of epidemiology, create uh, concepts and mathematics that potentially are fruitful for understanding how human social collectives work. Mm-hmm. So th- you know, ideas like information cascades and so forth. Uh, Benjamin Ray at the, in uh, Virginia found very striking parallels between how uh, epidemics spread and the, the spread of the uh, uh, basically the social craze associated with the Salem witch trials. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the spatial patterns there were very, very similar. So the, the natural world seems to me to present a source of ideas, almost a library of forms and patterns that potentially we can use to gain greater purchase on the past. Mm-hmm. But in terms of understanding how one thing connects to another and how social collectives work and unfold dynamically, I think compu- computation presents us with an interesting set of tools. And those are called agent-based simulations. And what they do is they take an identified system, Mm -hmm. define each actor, give those actors a set of rules, define how those actors work with each other and with their environment, then they see what kind of patterns emerge from this digital simulation. And the reason why a lot of social scientists, historical scientists, historians care about this is they often produce patterns that are strikingly similar with what we see in either historical data or, you know, contemporary data or the archaeological record or what have you. So they've been used, for example, to try and gain greater purchase about why the Anasazi disappeared from uh, what's now Arizona. Your namesake at Carlton, Sean Graham, yes. have, has used it to study the uh, emergence of social violence in Rome. There has been very interesting work on the Battle of Trafalgar and how is it that the British were able to uh, obtain such a striking victory. And all of this has been u- done through the use of simulations that... Uh, show how individuals and aggregates of individuals connect with each other and uh, you know, hypotheses are generated to explain how they've connected with each other. And I think by extension we can use that approach and that technology to examine how human collectives interact with germ collectives. Right. Or ecosystems or mm. other things like that. We have Systems of systems, connecting, interacting, morphing, adapting, all those kinds of things. And I think agent-based simulations will help us gain greater purchase in terms of understanding that. Right. And it's weird because I've always considered history as a humanity, right? Like, I've always said that to people. But in this framework, it's not. It's, it is a social science, I think, like you say, right? It's, it's 
taking away the exclusive domain of human beings in study in the past and the digital component, I think, just assist in that by giving a broader data set from which to work would be my take on that. And I, to me, for me, on a personal note, it changes the entire way I have to conceive of the discipline then. Well, I think it built, you know, it doesn't necessarily detract. I mean, I think there's always going to be a rule for what we do in the humanities, which is hermeneutic. We're still going to be deeply invested in text. And if anything, we're going to need that to assist us in building simulations and effectively deploying computation. What I think um, simulations and other things do is they provide another venue, another vector to understand the past, and mm -hmm. that vector is experimentation. Right. So we create an experiment, i.e. we create a fake system, and we see if that fake system acts in the same way or produces the same pattern that a historic system yep. did. And if that hypothesis produces a pattern that is similar to what we know happened in history, then we've got a pretty good basis for believing that hypothesis is actually it's valid. Right. But then at the same time, does it not, to a certain degree, almost... we If we do this and we discover that germs or whatever, that we, that we all act the same in some way, right? That initially, when you were talking this morning, I, my initial thought was that, that there's got to be some sort of religious meaning to all this, right? If we're all just cells and beings, right? Like that, that's one, but let's not get into that because that I think is a larger issue. But two, it almost takes away from human agency in a way, does it not? Because we all like to believe that we are masters of our own destiny and that we have say in what we're doing and that free will is a real thing. But if we're all just behaving the same way as trees or other, even a single cell organism, the way it does its own thing, like, does it not take away some human agency as opposed to give agency then to these other beings that we haven't believed to be sentient before? I suppose... But if you view history as a zero-sum game <laughs> where, you know, uh, the acquisition of animal agency detracts from our dignity or our agency or what have you, mm -hmm. uh, sure, <laughs> you know, uh, that's fine. On the other hand, uh, mm -hmm. you, know, in you know, if we define human agency as the performance of certain goals, like staying healthy, yeah recognizing that we have potential partners out there or potential uh -huh. opponents that we need to thwart um, our agency is enhanced by viewing the world this way not uh, yeah. not undermined I think the fact of agency is not undermined by the recognition that there are other agents out there that we just didn't know exist before okay how about the uniqueness then I mean is is there a unique quality to being human? Because I think we've always thought that human beings, you know, you always see like, you know, the top of the food chain type idea or the idea of consciousness or verbal written language, right? These things that human beings do that other things haven't, or at least we haven't discovered the uh, existence of, yeah. at least, that we always like to think of ourselves as unique on this planet. And if not the planet, maybe even just in the world, right? The, right. the constant search for intelligent life, as, the, as people always say, right? That's always been the search. And the fact that we haven't necessarily found it in a concrete way provides us with some, I don't know, maybe it's just an ego thing, that we're unique. Well, yeah, and you know, I, in many ways, I think that really is the nub of the issue. Why do we care if we're not <laughs> unique anymore? <laughs> right. Um, if we're not that all that unique in the grand scheme of Earth's ecosystem, that's not going to keep me up at night particularly. <laughs> in fact, I find that a wondrous thing. It's, uh -huh. To me, it actually adds and enriches to my view of how the world is. It actually right. makes it a far more interesting um, place. Yeah. I think in the West we have a higher investment in this idea, in part because of the Christian idea of we're all created in the image of God, in yeah. Ago Die, and that that then you know, means that we're special. Right. And I think you know, potentially we have acquired or inherited that idea, and we still have an investment to one degree or another in that idea. But uh, that is not necessarily, you know, let's put it this way, I don't have an emotional connection to that idea. That's not determinative 
to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the same text that says that we are created in the image of God also points to actually, you know, St. Paul talks about a world where the, the creation actually seems to have a sense of agency and investment in history <laughs> right. waiting for its culmination. So, the, you know, there, there's all sorts of theology and philosophy that you could bite or chew with when you're trying to come up, you know, come to grips with all mm-hmm. of this. I don't particularly feel upset by the fact that uh, man is no longer the measure of all things, or, you know, humans now. You know, humans are not the measure of all things. That doesn't really bother me particularly. In fact, it might help us to behave better if we didn't realize we were the only actor on stage. (laughs) That is true. We might, yeah, we might behave better, Uh, especially if we consider the planet as an actor. Yeah, uh, as a you know, various things on the planet, but the planet in and of itself is an actor, which I find the the possibility of that really interesting. And the planet defending itself yeah. against what human beings are doing, which is really interesting in, in sort of taking away the agency. And and the, I find it uh, of human beings to or little degree, or or maybe minimizing the effects that we think we have that we're not as important as maybe we believe we are. In the grand scheme of things, like if we if we consider ourselves the only actors, the only people, or the only things with agency, then we would then therefore not, almost by definition, be overestimating our effect on other things. I mean, as you're talking, one of the what came to mind is is that you know this way of thinking provides another opportunity for us to consider well, just who are we and how are we really acting? Right. So you know, in, you know, if you look at how humans are acting, are we not? In many ways, are we not acting like uh, an epidemic or a virus that just grows explosively without thought to resources and then collapses and dies once uh, everything has been uh, consumed? You know, and if that is, you know, I I don't find that a particularly uh, appealing template (laughs) for thinking about my species. Mm -hmm. So, you know, potentially I think this animal turn or whatever we're going to call it will hopefully engender in us uh, potentially uh, an intellectual modesty about our place uh, on this you know on the grand scheme of things and on this planet and so on that uh, might make us somewhat better neighbors to uh, that clump of uh, lettuce in the garden <laughs> yeah. next door yeah. well and it sort of fits with the, the the broader idea of you know when you go to grad school or the more you learn just in general right the more you learn the more you figure out what that you just don't really know anything yeah right and this to me is a great example of that like the more I've read about this and listening to you today the more I realize of how little I actually know about a lot of these things. And, and that's sort of a really exciting thing, right? Yeah, it's I, a I, really exciting possibility. I'd rather live in that world than one where we've got it all figured out. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of history, though, with the digital tools, with this thing, you know, you, you teach at Brock, you, I've, I've taught here, I teach at Carleton. How then do we take these ideas and try to implement them with students who, now not all students, but a lot of students come into the to the room at the first day of, of a class and the primary concern is what's on the exam, yeah, <laughs> right? And, and how they're gonna do on in the class. How do we take these ideas, implement them when we're talking with students and try to have students engage with some of these big ideas while still getting across the core curriculum that we wanna get across? Like if you're in Canadian History 101, there are certain things that you need to talk about. Yeah. Or is this something oh, that, gosh. or is um, it something that maybe we're just not far enough along in the process? And you know, the, the the I've always found, and certainly I'm relatively new to this, but that the teaching is a few years behind where the scholarship is always. Yeah. But, uh, there's always a natural lag because to me, one one of the things for me, academic historians, I think the biggest audience for academic historians are our students. Yeah. And uh, you know, I try with something like this to get larger audiences outside of the classroom but you know for most of us the the largest groups that we're going to be talking to are our students and if these are the big ideas in the discipline then certainly we would want our students to learn about them yeah we would in terms of how i mean some elements aren't going to be all that hard to integrate i think into our standards accounts you know the fall of rome well we're going to give, you know, say a lecture on the fall of Rome and why it happened. And, you know, it would just be another dot or two on the historiographical chain. So, you know, Rome fell because of a lack of moral virtue. So saith I don't know, Gibbon or whoever. 
Rome fell because of economic overreach, so <laughs> right. says whomever. And now people are saying, well, Rome fell because of climate change and right. disease. And so recognizing that element of, shall we say, animal agency or ecosystem agency doesn't strike me as that hard. In terms of dealing with the larger, shall we say, philosophical implications and how that's either going to affect the future trajectory of the discipline or how we teach, I don't know, but you know, one no one person needs to figure it out. I think it's just like any other new intellectual mm. movement. There will be people who are deeply invested in it, some who find it appalling. Right. Uh, we will have our various conferences and so on, and things will sift and sort themselves out over time, likely after I retire, so I don't really need to worry about it. <laughs> All right, well, for you personally, then, you know, we, we talked before that you, you do a lot with virtual reality, uh, augmented reality, these sorts of issues. You're very heavily invested in these digital tools. Uh, how does this new turn, these new approaches then, influence those digital projects that you're working on? To be honest, I'm still trying to figure that out. But what I would say is that, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing with the digital, on the digital side of things, I'm targeting now more towards the Niagara region. Mm -hmm. So what that means for me is I'm quite interested in, uh, you know, uh, know, my immediate project right now is I want to create a historical GIS database of the Niagara region. And I would say just by virtue of the things that I've been learning about the animal turn, I'm going to be far more sensitive to, say, the medical history and the environmental history of the region yeah. than I would have been before, and for that matter, the agricultural history of the region. You know, I'm going to likely have a set of questions I did not have before. But you know, in, in, in terms of moving forward on the digital space, for me, a lot of it right now, I'm at a stage where a lot of my work is just going to be getting the data in a format where it can be treated by computation. Right. So, I mean, creating an adequate historical GIS database, that is a multi-year effort. That's like seven years of work. Um, and, you know, some, you know, my colleague Don Lafreniere is, is well along in creating a uh, database for Michigan, and he's about halfway through a seven-year effort. You know, he's my guide for a lot of things in the GIS, and he's got a team of about 12 or 13 people working to construct this thing. Hmm. So for a substantial part of the remainder of my career, my concern is going to be just to get that data in place, Hmm. and then use of it will have to come with, you know, others who then make use of that data. But you know, part of the reason I'm invested in historical GIS is that it seems to me that there is use for that data that extent that's it's going to be useful not only for historians but potentially for uh, practitioners in medicine. There are people in the field of epidemiology who are interested in historical GIS, its data, and what it has to contribute. Potentially, in terms of the, uh, fields like urban planning, dealing with the effects of transportation infrastructure potentially even business analytics, there might be a connection there. So there are all sorts of, uh, you know, there are potential uses for historical GIS. And, uh, uh, you know, my general sense is is that uh, that data needs to be digitized. Uh, And that's something where, uh, you know, for my part, I see it as a public good. And it's potentially something that history departments across the country can uh, take the lead in terms of working with their communities to create. And I hope they do. Right, but as you say, it's a long-term project and therefore a very expensive project yeah. as well. So what what sort of role then does that play in an environment in which, I don't know if historical consciousness is decreasing, but certainly enrollments are decreasing and, and history departments are having trouble with yeah. staffing and things like this. And, and yet we want to take on these large projects. Like how do we manage to, to do that in a way that both fits our needs as historians, but also the practical needs of administrators. Well, I mean, you know, I've thought a lot about that, and that, and history has a lot to contribute to other domains. Sure, yeah. And if we can find ways to link that historical sense with other domains, I mean, even in business, the field of business analytics, you actually need people, people who do well in that actually have a sense of history about them. They think right. in historical terms, they have historical analogs that they can draw on to try and interpret their data. 
If you don't have anything in your brain, you can have all the data you want. You need something to help you make sense of it, to interpret it, to suggest where you go next. Connecting history with a domain like business analytics or a domain like urban planning or uh, forecasting, uh, you know, in whatever sphere you want, whether it's the social, public, or private sectors, the history still offers some pretty valuable skills. And it's just a matter of finding a way to create a viable roadmap for students who are taking history to understand that once they leave our charge, there's a viable roadmap for them to find some good jobs. But they have to, you know, they, they, you know, this is terminology I hate, but uh, the the contemporary parlance says there are two sets of skills that students need to acquire at the university level. One are soft skills uh, and the other are hard skills. We purportedly provide the soft skills. I don't like the term because frankly what we offer is damn hard to learn. Yes, it is. And uh, so it it strikes me as a a rather poor term for what it is that we are offering. Mm -hmm. The hard skills then are the more technical skills. And some of those we can actually offer because they make sense to offer uh, to incorporate them in terms of uh, supporting our research or our teaching. Some of which are things like GIS, because GIS is not all that different in principle than the analytics software that somebody in business is going to right. use. Uh, things like simulations, potentially that's going to be a very useful field for people in you know in this city that's concerned. Going to have lots of government departments that are concerned about yeah. public safety and so forth, and absolutely having uh, a knowledge about how to create simulations uh, could potentially be very useful for them. So, I think, a prof- as a profession, we still have a lot to offer. We just have to find, uh, you know, be creative um, in finding connections between what it is that we concern ourselves with, the kinds of skills that we develop, and how those connect with what that student is going to be facing once uh, that student faces the job market. Right. So this is an interesting sort of dynamic to me. I was just in uh, Belgium and France Mm -hmm. with the Vimy Foundation with a group of high school kids from across the country. We started in EEP and we worked our way through essentially a battlefield tour, but frankly it was mostly cemeteries that we would visit for, for all First World War. We didn't do any Second World War stuff. And what was interesting to me, and and I've noticed this more and more as I've taught more students, is that we can say that, you know, however many hundreds of thousands of people died and millions of casualties when injured and and all that. Um, But the thing that the students really take away from it or where they really got emotional is every one of them had to do a project about one soldier who was buried somewhere in Belgium or France. And we went to the cemeteries, we found the headstones of those individuals, and the students gave a presentation about the person at their headstone. Wow. Uh, and it was very powerful. And sort of the more we did it, the first few presentations weren't all that emotional, but the more we did it, the students got more and more emotional as they learned more about the war and the conditions and everything that was going on. And, and so much so that the last day when we were at Vimy, because a few people selected uh, individuals who had not been found, so we were at the Vimy Memorial, and they presented at Vimy in front of the name that was etched for those who were uh, not never found. And so the whole group got really emotional because uh, the last day it was sort of built up. But it struck me as, as what becomes really moving to, to students, and, and I think to a lot of us sometimes too, are those micro-histories yeah. where we learn about the individuals. We learn the stories of what this person did at this time and, and we can create a connection with them in some way like a lot of the students pick people who went to their high schools yeah right and you know the students who I'm there with are ranging from you know 14 or 15 to 17 so the 17 year olds are pretty much on the verge of the same age as a lot of the people who were, were seen we saw the tomb of a 15 year old for instance right and, yeah. and so you create a connection one-on-one but then we also like this big data that to me gets away from those individual micro personalized stories that are so compelling on a one-on-one basis and there's almost a disconnect in my mind between those two things that we can learn so much from the data and this mapping and all this stuff and it's it's very illuminating but a lot of the core of what the discipline is are those micro histories and creating that connection with the past and I'm just wondering for you who someone who deals a lot with a lot of this data if you have found that as well, or if I'm just 
sort of talking out of out of nothing here. And if that does exist, how do we then address it so that when we go to the public with this big data, it doesn't fall on deaf ears of just like, oh, that's just a lot of numbers that you can still somehow yeah. personalize it or connect it in some way. I think it's fairly simple solution. I mean, you know, as you, as you well know, I mean that the profession was massively divided yes. on what is the proper focus of history. Yeah. So we had the social science history of the 60s, and then the 70s comes along, and uh, you know the micro history comes in, and uh, we have uh, you know individuals say, well, we basically the the proclamation that individuals matter, and we need to be paying attention and doing due justice to them. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the battles had to do with well, what is real history, and uh, uh, you know, there were the, the scholars from the '60s were adapting the mantle of the science and saying we're doing the real history here, and this is based on quantitative data, and so aren't we cool because we're being <laughs> like scientists and using numbers? And others got very defensive, and then there were political. Uh, fireworks associated with studies of slavery and what was being said there and that made a lot of computationally based history quite toxic uh, you know personally I just it, it, it strikes me as just common sense why wouldn't you look at history at both levels right yeah it, it's there the, I don't see a competition here uh, it, it seems to me that both are equally fundamental parts of history uh, we want to know something about the grand currents and sweeps of history that just makes sense. We're all affected by them, mm -hmm. but we also want to know how people on the ground are affected by them. Industrialization, well, how's that going to help, you know, help or hurt somebody? Cultural trends like prohibition, well, how are people reacting on the ground to that? Right. Um, you know, I, I think you're right in terms of a personal investment in history. We connect better with people at the individual level, but we also, I think, want a knowledge of that surround, of that background, mm -hmm. of, of you know what is happening in the larger economy or the larger culture and so on. And so, you know, historians, we just try to uh, do justice to our craft as storytellers, which, right. you know, we, we are still in the business of telling stories. Mm -hmm. Yes, we tell uh, interpretations and analyses and so on, but we're still trying to put all the pieces together in a compelling manner that's going to matter to somebody. So that mm -hmm. means at some juncture we are still very much storytellers, mm -hmm. and we have to pay attention to both sides of the divide. Mm -hmm. Is there a competition, though, for attention, say public attention, between the, the macro and the micro that could be a concern? I mean, yes, you can go to something like CHA, and there's space for everything, absolutely. But I just wonder, in the public arena, is there a competition for attention and for what people are going to attach themselves to and the best way to tell the, like is the best way to tell the big sweep of history like this big data is it through a uh, one example of it right I, I just I always think of like you know when there's a natural disaster right people always find one picture of one person and that becomes almost the symbol uh -huh. of the larger scope and I wonder if that's something in history that we could do, maybe not amongst academic historians at conferences or anything like that, but in presenting these ideas to the public. Sure. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I wish I could be a little more loquacious than that, but sure. You know, I, I think you can potentially make any approach to history or uh, any level of history interesting or topical or compelling and it really comes down to how uh, good a uh, storyteller, how good a presenter you are, the mm. kinds of analogies, the kind of language, all those kinds of things really comes down to your communication skills. You know, whichever becomes the most relevant or practical in the public mind, well, I leave that to the public to decide. And, mm. uh, you know, I do the best as a historian as I can to just uh, do justice to what I know and to point to what, uh, you know, point to what seems to me most important in terms of whatever it is I'm trying to explain. I mean, now, in, in that realm, well, let's talk a little bit about what you do in addition to the, the digital stuff. Oh, I want yeah. to talk Harold Linnis a little bit. All right. Um, Harold Linnis is a figure. You, you've written about Harold, Harold Linnis. It was your yeah. most, most recent book, right? Yeah, okay. I wrote a book uh, called Emergence and Empire. Yes. So why has Harold Linnis, because so I do communication stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Why is Harold Linnis so hard for people to really wrap their heads around? 
because he was an awful writer. <laughs> it, it really is that as simple as that. Yeah. He was a, 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 a he uh, had a very hard time in putting forward a coherent narrative, and he spoke in very in a very cryptic fashion. He often didn't uh, make plain the analytical apparatus that he was uh, asking you to follow, or that he was using to structure his history. And so that has made it a very uh, difficult, uh, uh, you know, set of texts for scholars and the public with, to to engage with. You know, what one of the big arguments in the Harold Innes literature is is there's something more underneath what apparently is readily accessible on the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some who have denied that, um, and there are others, myself among them, who believe no, there actually is a very <laughs> sophisticated uh, theory and philosophy of history underlying what Harold Innes had to say. Uh, just it, it requires, well, doing what the due diligence you would associate with Harold Innes. I mean, you read his text, you read his underlying letters, you read his mm-hmm. unpublished writings, you put all these things together, and uh, uh, at least personally, it seemed to me there was actually a fairly coherent uh, uh, system of history or thought about history that is there. You know, I maintain that Harold Innes was very much interested in the kinds of things we would call self-organization, mm-hmm. uh, complex systems, how they emerge, how they crash, how they, uh, you know, evolve over time. That's something he was that was not new to him. That's the set of concerns he uh, inherited from Adam Smith and then through Smith, uh, Thorstein Veblen, and it was a template of history that he used both in his Staples hypothesis and also in his communication writings. And uh, you know, one of the thi- one of the, the I'd say shortcomings that I saw in a lot of the Harold Innes literature is that a lot of the communication writing or work on his communication work mm-hmm. pays minimal or no attention to Harold Innes, the economist, and the set of <laughs> ideas that he was dealing with as an economist. And to my mind, that is a mistake in large measure because Innes, in his writings, made very plain, look, I'm an economist, I'm using economic tools, mm-hmm. this is what I'm using to make sense of the world's cultural past. Right. They're there. They're latent. They can be discovered. And that's something I tried to do in the my treatment of Innes. That's interesting because, as you say that, you're absolutely right. Like the, We sort of have Innes... Staples in his communications, and yeah. yet, yeah, we don't tend to to put them together. And I think one of the reasons for me is, as you say, it's a he's a terrible writer. Like it, it's so hard. I hate reading Harold Innes stuff. It's so terrible to read it. Although I'll say, I think it's easier to read the Staples stuff yes. than it is to read the communication stuff. The yes. communication stuff is just it's so dense and so yes. hard to hard to get through. But does that make Harold Innes a bad historian? Was he a bad historian? Because if you can't communicate effectively and all this time later we're still arguing about what you were trying to say, does, does that compromise the actual message? Well, I, yes, I think but it certainly, if we make a, you know, if we count a good historian as somebody who can communicate effectively, well, Harold <laughs> yeah. Innes didn't do himself any favors in that score. Um, if we uh, count a good historian as somebody who is conveying, the, you know, interesting ideas about history, uh-huh. um, yeah. uh, you know, applying, uh, you know, applying context to see or concepts, interesting concepts to see if they have any purchase. I mean, what Annis was doing was taking concepts from the domain of economics and applying them to the span of global history to see if they work. Mm-hmm. So he was being an adventurous historian. Yes. Um, and uh, you, you know, from that standpoint, uh, you know, I think he presented Canadian letters with a set of interesting things, a set of interesting propositions, you know, about how to think about the, the global past, about how to think about communication technologies and their impact on us in the present. You know, one of the most valuable legacies that I take from Innes is that you know there, there's a great deal of concern in the present about information overload and oh mm-hmm. my God, test social media and isn't this scrambling around with our brains and isn't all this horrible? Well, if you read Innes and you read about 
what people had to say about newspapers in the 19th century. Oh my God, there's all this information, this is scrambling with our brains, isn't this horrible? And you know, one of the things that I've taken from Innes is, is that for whatever reason, humans tend to have this very ambivalent, almost fearful attitude towards their communication technologies. And they're always worried about the new innovation. Yes. They're always worried about what it's going to uh, do to how we think and uh, the kinds of people that we're going to become. And, you know, Innes himself points that out. He points to Plato and the Federists and there's this dialogue where one character is saying, you young people in your writing, you watch out, it's going to lead you to no good. Uh, you know, the oral tradition's where it at. That's going to make you, uh, you know, decent, wise, and, uh, you know, effective human beings. And it just seems to me that, you know, today's discourse about technology is just a lot of more of the same. Right. You know, what I take from Innes is, is that I don't see any communication technology, including artificial technology or artificial intelligence, as being something that is an overweening threat that is going to be our undoing. Hmm. We've adapted to new technologies in the past. We're going to adapt to these ones. And it's just a matter of facing the problem and using our ingenuity. And if we do that, we're going to be fine. Yeah, and that's a good takeaway, I think, from from what it is. Because, yeah, like you say, there's so much tension about technology, but... Yeah, the tension has always been there with technology. Absolutely. It, it's, it's never gone away, and it's always going to continue. And the story I tell my students all the time in my radio course is a story from the World's Fair. Uh, I can't remember, whichever year it was in New York, which I think, I want to say 39, but I'm not entirely sure. But there was a, uh, an individual, an old woman there, who was at the fair, and they were demonstrating radio to her, and she didn't believe it. Like, oh. She just did not believe it. She said, there's someone must be someone behind the, the booth or something. And they showed her, there's no one there. And then she she said, okay, fine, it's a ghost. Like, it has to be paranormal. So, But it, it speaks to the tension that exists uh, with new technologies and yeah. and the way in which we have to adapt. And, and, and you know, and another way, like the way, you know, people always talk, their, their grandparents can't send them an email or whatever it is, right? Like, yeah. It's this idea of, of where the tension is and, and who gets to... Be included who doesn't get to be included and and the challenge yeah. that challenge and yeah that's a universal thing and it's happened for thousands of years like i'm sure when the first person brought back a knife was everyone else was like what are you doing that's like, right right like it, of course that's right but you know I, I do find it interesting we tend to tell ourselves stories particularly about the young generation and their interaction with technology mm-hmm. So when I grew up, it was television that was ruining young people. <laughs> right. Okay, and yeah. making us vapid uh, whatevers. Uh, and now the current discourse is about people in games and texting and so on. Yep. And I, I'd say one of the most absurd manifestations of that is this characterization. You know, you and I lived before the cell phones, so we're digital immigrants. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, the millennials are the digital natives. Um, and their brains are configured. They're a different order of human <laughs> beings for the rest of us. And that just strikes me as so much hyperbole. And the, you know, the, the millennial is, I, they're going to have to pay the bills. They're going to eat Chinese food when they're 50. They're, you know, right, I, yeah. I just don't see this notion that somehow technology is reconfiguring us into some sort of fundamentally different animal than we right. are. Um, you know, the, the same concerns about what text texting is doing now to people were expressed by people about individuals reading small you know brief columns in the newspaper it was going to make them superficial it was going to give them a limited attention span they were only going to be think think in incoherent bites (laughs) all of these kinds of things and i i just see it as a lot of uh silliness that we'll forget about 20 years from now and that's a good thing yeah there's a great meme on the internet of people on a bus in the 50s with and they're all reading their own newspaper and the meme is something along the lines of tell me again about how cell phones have made us uh, not want to talk to each other right like yeah um you know that's what's made us antisocial. um but that brings us i think just sort of full circle to where we started in terms of what happened today with the digital history stuff that we've we uh, I had a chance to see some of the projects. I know you, I saw you going around to some of the projects and some of the stuff that these students are doing with these tools are really remarkable. And to me, I'm not that old, right? I've I've only been out of the PhD for whatever, four years, whatever it's been, but 
the change in what is possible for students now versus when I was, oh yeah, forget an undergrad, even when I was doing the PhD, like the speed with which these tools are being implemented and used by these students, it's really quite remarkable. And the possibilities for engagement and learning are, are really remarkable. And I think that the discipline therefore is in a really good state. All we have to do now, as we talked about earlier, is let people know that this is happening. Yes. Uh, and, and hopefully get people invested. But I'm, I'm really optimistic. And days like today make me even more optimistic. Well, I'm glad to hear that. And it, it, it seems to me that now the barriers to getting into the digital space are a lot lower yeah. than they were when I started out. You know, I, I started my career as a, re you know, I finished my PhD in 2001 and worked as a grad student in the late 1990s. And then getting into something like 3D modeling or GIS, that was still a pretty expensive proposition. Right. But now, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, companies are giving their software almost away yeah. to particularly the education institutions. They're not doing it for their health. They're doing it because they want students to become, uh, you know, adept at their software and invested in it and mm -hmm. take that into the workplace. But whatever, um, right. you know, it, it's a lot easier to acquire 3D uh, content. There's a lot more support on YouTube or places like that mm -hmm. for learning how to use these technologies. And it really just comes down to people, uh, you know, uh, scholars making the decision, okay, I'm going to integrate this into my teaching yeah. and uh, taking the time to, you know, there are lots of summer school courses around now uh, to make it easier for people to work, uh, to uh, participate in the digital space. So I, for example, I teach at the Digital Historical Summer Institute in Victoria, a 3D modeling course every year. Uh, the University of Ottawa here has a digital history yep. uh, uh, DH site, I believe it's called, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that, and they get to go around yeah. and, and do different things with different, I think I think there's one professor, but they always bring in different people yeah. to, to teach different skills. They get to do some museum work too. But there are you know that there is now a lot more support to help people get into that digital space to incorporate that into their teaching than there used to be. The software is less expensive, and it really is coming down to you, I, or somebody else making the decision that this will be helpful. And you know, and in a basis, that really is the ultimate marker for whether. The digital ought to be brought into a classroom or not. Is this going to be helpful? Is this going to teach something that is useful? Is this going to contribute to a student's knowledge and practice of the discipline that we are teaching? And it really comes down to if the answer is yes, by all means go for it. If it's a if this is if the answer is no, if this is just something where lots of people are doing it because it's fashionable, then don't do it. Right. We're yeah. all busy, we don't have the time. Yeah, and, and I know for me personally, like I, I've started having students at my courses at Carleton, their final projects are to do podcasts. It's a radio class, so I say create a radio show, uh, a historical radio show. And I, I know even with me, like four years ago, I gave a, a workshop on how to do recording, how to create a podcast, and I had to sort of walk everybody through it. Last semester in the fall, I had a class dedicated to it, and everyone said, "Yeah, we know how to do. We know how to do this already. Yeah, <laughs> you don't need to do this." So, like that change was really remarkable. But at the same time, like I've had students come up to me after the semester, and this is going to sound self-aggrandizing, but I don't mean it in that way. Uh, and they say to me that we really like this project because it lets us express our ideas, express what we learned. But I'm not a strong writer, so yeah. here's here's another tool that I now have to express the ideas, and it's good to know that. It was, I just have to work on my writing. It's not actually an intellectual problem, it's a writing problem. And that, that sort of stuff I think is really interesting to me to also reimagine for us as historians the way in which we can disseminate our information. And if it's not always the written word, that's fine because there's so many possibilities. Well, and that is an interesting issue. I mean, I've been heavily invested in my own work in the idea that content expression in this century is going to become increasingly multimodal. Yes. So, you know, in any typical historical monograph, what are we looking at? Maybe 97% text, yeah. maybe a map or two, some photos, and that is the sum of, of the matter. 
That is the way we have done it. That has been a fruitful way to do it. It's also been a cost-efficient way to disseminate content. Mm -hmm. But that it needn't be the case now. So with computation, with tools where the cost of producing content is diminishing, their ease of use is also you know, becoming, they're becoming more user-friendly yep. with all those kinds of things. Is it beyond the realm of possibility to conceive of a major historical work that is a, an amalgam of text, of video, of animations, of audio, all of those types of things, and that that is the basis for composition? It doesn't strike me as an absurd idea. In the medieval era, there was something called emblematic literature. Francis Bacon wrote a defense of it. Part of the reason he said that emblems were useful is they communicated concepts more easily. They were more easily apprehended than textual representations. Hmm. And that's always seemed to me a pretty profound insight. If one mode of expressing an idea or a concept is not particularly useful or difficult to apprehend, why on earth would we not then use a different communication formalism to right. express that idea? So if a visual representation of some historic process is a more effective means of communicating that idea, potentially in conjunction with, say, a sound, a sound narration, well then why wouldn't we do that? Right. Uh, and a lot of it just has to do with habit, what we characterize as scholarly and so on. But to me, in principle, there's no reason why we shouldn't do that. And I rather expect ultimately at some point we will do that. It's yeah, a matter of, of you know, evolving practice and what we deem to be scholarly. And there's also the issue of knowing how to present that content in a scholarly format. So. Mm. I can present a building or, or an urban landscape, and I will have my historical colleagues say, well, how do you know it looked like that? Right. So yeah. prove it to me, yes. right? And one of the key challenges that we have in multimodal communication is that we don't know how to document that content. Right. You know, the way I say it is, how do you footnote a building? Yes. Yeah. It's very well, difficult to do. Well, we just, I mean, people are talking <laughs> about that idea, but how to go about doing that is something we... It's not, in principle, an impossible idea. People invented the footnote. People can yep. invent novel methods for uh, accounting for both the provenance of their data and what they did with it. Right. It's just a matter of figuring it out. But once that is figured out, and I expect in future it will, what then hinders us from using multimodal content? Well, I don't think there is anything in principle to stop us from doing that, aside from knowing how to produce that content and a general acceptance by the profession that this is a legitimate way to communicate. Right. I think the latter of those is probably one of the biggest ones, although it's starting to shift, I've noticed. I'm happy yeah. that, that there are people in the world like other, I call them other Sean Graham and Ian Milligan, yourself, who are within the academy already saying, we don't have to do it the old way. Like, the old yeah. way is fine. Like, if you want to write a book, that's fine. I mean, I just had a book come out in November. Books are fun. I like books. Like, I'm not against books, but there's other ways to disseminate information than just books. Yes. Like, and, uh, you know, I, I have a few thousand myself, so right, yeah. you know, I'm, I, I happen to be a fan. Yeah. But that being said, there are potential, potentially different ways to uh, reconstruct or represent the past mm -hmm. and it, it really comes down to why would we not avail ourselves of those expressive possibilities right and if, if, if it is useful to so do then by all means we should so do and we just you know it will it will come down to you know we, we uh, the culture of the discipline will need to change but as, as, as I think you're suggesting that is beginning to change yeah. I mean uh, when I began this uh, in the late 90s, and I'd tell a senior professor in the discipline what I was doing, almost invariably there'd be a chortle and the word Nintendo would come out. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, the elision with gaming, the, 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 the meaning of the, prof the professor's comments were quite plain. But, now, you know, I mean, uh, Four years ago, or what was it? I don't know. Three or four years ago, I was shocked to get an uh, invitation from the Journal of the Canadian Historical Association, 
you know, I hadn't prompted it. And right. The, one of the editors had attended the talk where I'm talking like I'm talking now and asked me to contribute an article. So that indicated to me that it, there was a sea change. And yeah. that it is the sea change. There are editors of my cohort and younger now that are starting new staff journals. And I think yeah. that's going to have an, uh, a bearing on how the uh, uh, communicative practices of the discipline are going to evolve in the years ahead. Right. And two, I mean, we, we should also note, too, I mean, there's a lot of books that aren't any good, too, right? So just because you produce a book doesn't mean it's good the same way that with these other devices, it has to be good. It has to be of, of quality to be of value, really. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And, and a lot of it just has to do with culture. And I mean, even in uh, uh, disciplines where graphic content is deemed to be important, my colleague Diane Favreau at UCLA wrote a very interesting article where she described, uh, you know, she had been part of a collaborative team called Rome Reborn, where they had created the reconstruction of ancient Rome during, I think it was the time of the Emperor Trajan or something uh -huh. like that. So a big, impressive uh, rendition of uh, what the city looked like back then. Yeah. And they brought in, uh, you know, what, what she found very interesting is, is they ended up bringing in individuals from a variety of different disciplines, architectural history, classics, okay. and so forth. And the conventions that those people adhered to and deemed to be uh, indicative of rigorous content were very, very different. Some mm -hmm. scholars would say, well, you shouldn't have... Uh, uh, texture and color on your maps. They should just, you know, a good scholarly model is only just a line drawing looking like an architectural right. drawing. That's an objective rendition of what the building looked like. Then the next group would say, "Where, where's the color on this? This doesn't look like a model. This is no good. What are you people doing? There was, there was no common conception of what a scholarly model looked like. Right. It all had to do with institutional norms, the history mm -hmm. of the discipline, and so on. So, you know, much, you know, I, I guess my plea to my colleagues is, yes, we have norms that we follow. Yes, we have communication practices that we follow. And they're very good. The knowledge gets around. <laughs> yeah. But that doesn't mean we have to stop at those. And right. I don't think we should stop yeah. at those. I, you know, I, I, uh, at some juncture, our definition as a culture is going to change um, computing, computer programming. I it wouldn't surprise me in a century now if that is an established literacy. Like, yeah, yeah, that's what we teach five-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, like essentially, yeah. So, in a world where you have practitioners like that, the expressive possibilities are going to be much larger yeah. for that person who takes computer programming for granted. And if that is the case, I expect then the expressive trajectory of our discipline is going to become very, very different as a result. Yeah, and you know, you, you started your talk today by saying you don't like to make predictions. But Boy, uh, am I uh, going <laughs> against what I said. <laughs> um, but I, I really enjoyed this, and I'm going to let you go now because there's apparently a pub situation. That oh, I'm, well, we got to keep our priorities I, yeah, straight. I don't want to keep you from, but uh, I very much appreciate the time this afternoon talking about sort of where this, the, the state of the discipline is, uh, and, and I really enjoyed this. So John Bonnet, Brock University, thank you so very much. Well, thank you, Sean. I enjoyed it, too. If you have any questions or comments for the podcast, it's historyslam at gmail.com. Twitter is at Dr. Shawnee Fever. And if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.